0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Elijah had had quite a several years. He lived during the time of the reign of King Ahab, which the writer of the Book of Kings calls the most evil king until his time. He married a foreign princess by the name of Jezebel, who brought in her pagan religion of Baal. And quickly converted the entire nation, including her husband. The altars to the true God were torn down. The prophets were slaughtered, except those who were saved by Elijah, hiding them in caves. And the nation itself devolved into paganism. Temples to Baal were set up all over the place and became the, the religion of the land. In direct opposition to this, Elijah was given the authority to call upon God and prevent it from raining for three whole years. A drought settled upon the land. At the end of that time, the word of God came to Elijah, who was told, Go and meet with Ahab. This meeting took place on a mountain, where Ahab came with all the prophets of Baal, at which time Elijah challenged them. I'm sure you're familiar with this account. It's one of those events we learn in Sunday school and sticks with us. So Elijah said, Let's have a contest. Set up an altar, and if Baal is the true God, call upon him and let him reveal himself. So the prophets of Baal chanted and called out all day long. They even resorted to cutting themselves. As Elijah mocks them, going so far and saying, Where is your God? he's off using the, ba- the, the bathroom at this time and too busy to hear your call. Of course, when it's Elijah's turn, he made it, made it so that it was extremely obvious that God was the true God, dousing the altar with gallons upon gallons of water till it was completely just drenched. And then by calling out just once, the fires came down from heaven and consumed the altar. The people who were witnessing this were so caught up in this great sign from God that they slaughtered the prophets of Baal. And one would think this would be the great turning point in the history of Israel, that the worship of Baal would be over once and for all. Yet we're told that Ahab runs back to his wife and tells her what happened, and she puts out a death warrant on Elijah. And at this point, apparently no one was willing to stand up for him, for he flees to a cave in the mountains, which is where our reading begins. As he is there, he sees great signs and wonders, earthquakes, fires. And in the midst of it all, we're told God was not present. But then finally, a still small whisper calls out, Elijah, why are you here? As we consider these events, it is important for us to recognize that these events show us and tell us something about how God works. And so today, we're going to look at signs and miracles and ask what is the place of them in the life of the Christian. It begins by understanding that when we talk about miracles and signs, it's good for us to know what they are. A miracle, by definition, is where God intervenes to do something miraculous. Please don't hold me for using the definition in the word itself. But we know what we're talking about. It's where things happen that we don't expect. Maybe it's against the natural order, or maybe it is beyond all we should know. And when we talk about miracles and God intervening, we as Christians can recognize that he does this yet today. How many of us have heard of things which happen which we can't quite explain, which yet are for the good of people? Those times where we're given a really awful diagnosis and then shortly thereafter that diagnosis is found to be wrong or maybe x-rays that showed cancer shows that it's been cleared up. Those times where we're missing someone and then they appear. Or those times where God provides in ways which we just can't explain. As Christians, we recognize that, as the writer to the Hebrews points out, all good things come from God above. And when we see good things happening, when we see the love of God in action, by faith, we see His hand in action. But you see, the thing about miracles is there is no specific promise attached to them. A miracle is not something that has a purpose, if you will. And what I mean by that is we don't look for miracles to to affirm specifically God's work in today's life as just a simple illustration. When you called me as your pastor, you didn't have some type of sign in the sky or a voice from heaven that said, yes, you made the right choice. Or maybe conversely, if you made the wrong choice, acknowledging that as well. No, we don't look for such things There are branches of Christianity that falsely think you should have that. This would be the Pentecostals, which you're probably aware of, who believe that there should be signs such as speaking in tongues, either unintelligible languages or foreign languages you've never heard, putting your hand in vipers' dens and trying to prove your faith by not being bit, those type of things. But that's not what is promised today. Yes, miracles happen. And by faith we can recognize them but we don't look for them to confirm and affirm the word of God. Signs are something different. Signs are, if you will, a special class of miracles. Signs are things that happen that point specifically to who a man is that he is a man of God with the word of God from God. These were I won't say frequent, because though they seem to be quite a few in the Old Testament, recognizing the Old Testament spanned 4,000 years, quite frankly, they weren't all that common even in the Old Testament. But we saw them happen. When Elijah was able to close up the heavens and not make it rain for three years, when he was able to call upon God to bring down the fires from heaven to consume that altar, these are signs Where the prophet knew he could call upon God to do something and God would do it. We see them in the New Testament. John points out all the time the signs of Jesus, beginning with his first, when he changed water into wine. This is the first of his signs that showed he was the Son of God. And his disciples believed. When he raised the dead, when he cast out demons. And the apostles We're also given the authority to call upon signs where Peter could say to a man who was lame, stand up and walk. And that word was affirmed as the man stood up and walked. Signs have a purpose about them. And that purpose is to proclaim that the one who is performing this sign has been sent by God because he can call upon God to do such things. We live in an age, though, that no longer expects signs to happen. To be specifically clear, we would not ever limit God to say he wouldn't do it. But the strong expectation is that the time of having men go forth who are given signs and therefore given a direct revelation from God is all but ended. And we'll understand why that is in just a moment. I mean, why aren't they a regular part of the church? The simple answer is because signs, in an almost counterintuitive sense, are not something which actually creates faith. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. Consider the message of Elijah. He had the sign of the drought. He had the sign of the fire from heaven. And he had demonstrated in this mountain cave. The power of God. And in all those instances, nothing came about that was lasting. Oh, sure, the people were riled up for a moment. We see this also in the day of Jesus when he fed the thousands on, at the, after the Sermon of the Mount. But the people are attracted to the power. They're attracted to having their needs of this life satisfied. And that's not a lasting thing. Even the signs of Jesus when he fed the hungry, when he raised the dead, when he healed the sick, those were all temporary signs because all those individuals became hungry again. They became sick again. They died again. Lazarus is not still living in his mortal body. His body is resting in the tomb even as as his soul is with the Lord waiting for the great resurrection on the last day. And our Lord doesn't intend for them to. They are signs of the man who gives them. More than that, when we see the signs of God, they actually do the opposite of creating faith. Because what they show is God's power and judgment. Here, look at what happened to Peter. As he goes out in the boat with our Lord, after our Lord teaches, and he says, cast out to the side. At a time of day in a place where it should not happen, the nets are overflowing with fish. Something that seems almost simple. And yet Peter recognized what this meant. Here was the great prophet, maybe even the Messiah. And what was his response? Not Lord, tell me more, but Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. The judgment of the Lord became clear. And yet, the Lord calmed Peter's heart, even as the Lord calmed Elijah's heart, not with signs and wonders, but with a still, soft whisper. Elijah, why are you here? I have yet reserved 7,000 who have not bent their knees to Baal or kissed him. Peter, do not be afraid. Your sins are forgiven. As Christians, we can see God's hands all around us. And it can affirm our faith. We give thanks to God. But see, here's the other problem with signs and miracles. For everyone that the Lord fed, for everyone that he healed, for everyone that he raised from the dead, there were thousands who remained hungry. Everyone eventually got sick and died. Jesus even points that out. When he talks about Elijah, who during the drought went to the widow in Zidol, where he said there were many who were hungry and widows who were dying, yet Elijah only went to one. In opposition, the Lord has given us something which sustains, that soft word of his gospel which goes forth. And that word is not temporary. That word doesn't end. The word of God goes forth and does not return to the Lord void, but it creates faith and sustains it and our Lord, knowing that he would be ascended into heaven, established the means by which that word would go forth. He told Peter and he told James and John, no longer will you catch fish, but you will catch men. You'll be fishers of men. Here he is laying the seeds that would come to, fulmi- come to culmination at our Lord's resurrection, where he would breathe on them the Holy Spirit and send them out, the first pastors of a church that would grow not by miracles, not by signs, not by power, but through the humble word of God proclaimed. The, word was esta- the Lord was establishing his very church, which continues today. Today we gather in this place. The Lord established that he would have the means by which his word would go out. And why is it that I no longer have the authority to create signs? Surely, wouldn't it seem, at least intuitive, that if I could go out and heal people consistently by placing my hand on them and speaking the word of God, that every time you got cancer, you came to the pastor instead of the doctor, that you'd be freed from it? Sure, there might be those who would come forth simply for the needs of this life. But quite frankly, at the end of the day, it's not the needs of this life which are of the utmost importance. For even if we lose all things, if we have the one thing which is important, we are the most blessed. Of course, that one thing is not the needs of this life, but the needs of eternal life, the needs of forgiveness and salvation, the needs of the faith. The apostles were given the authority to show signs, to show that they were had been given revelation from God himself. Not from the heavens, but from the man and God, who is our Lord Jesus, who taught them for three years, who presented himself after the resurrection, affirming that, yes, he had died for our sins, and he had also been raised for our salvation. And those men then wrote down their witness. They wrote it in the Gospels and in the Epistles. They shared those messages, those words, with the church. And now, 2,000 years later, we still have the words of our Lord recorded. Words which reveal what our Lord has done. And again, as the writer to the Hebrews put it, in many and various ways God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by the Son. And now that we have the words of the Son, now that the church has been established by the Son, now that pastors are raised up to preach the word and minister the sacraments, There's no need for further revelation. We have everything. Going back to Peter. Peter affirms this also in his second epistle. For he points out, Yes, I was on that great and glorious mountain when the Father spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son. But you have something far greater, Peter tells the church. You have the sure prophetic word. We can rejoice that we don't need signs and wonders We don't need to be, we don't need to see God in the earthquake or the fires or the lightnings. Thankfully, he comes to us with the still, short, the still small whisper of his gospel. That calming voice which proclaims the forgiveness of sins. That calming voice that calls us from our sins to repentance. That calming voice which gives us life eternal. Thanks be to God who has and abides with us now and always through this means of his word. Amen. We rise. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.